0: The Washington D.C. region is uh, well known for its love of polls, uh, and I've done a few highly scientific polls from this pulpit before, and we're going to we're going to do one more this morning. Um, this poll uh, is about adjectives. It's about adjectives that we would or would not want people to use to describe us. So it's re- it's real simple. I'm going to say a word, uh, an adjective, and you're going to raise your hand when you hear a word that you would like people to use to describe you. Ready? Here we go. Raise your hand if you would like to be described as happy. Would you like to be described as happy? Okay, good. Alright, raise your hand if you would like to be described as angry. Okay. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, Okay, Uh, raise your hand if you would like to be described as discouraged. Discouraged. Would you like somebody to describe you as discouraged? Okay, how about this? Raise your hand if you would like to be described as content. I do. I would be described as content. Okay, another one. Would you like to be described as helpful? Helpful. Yeah, good. Okay, now, raise your hand if you would like to be described as jealous. No. Yeah, so that's interesting. Not obviously, not quite as many people uh, wanted to be described as jealous, as wanted to be described as happy or helpful or content. Uh, And I'm sure I'm not surprised by this outcome, and I'm sure neither are you. Um, If you were to Google the word jealous, uh, you would come across many examples of its negative connotations. For, For example, you'd probably find this definition quote, feeling resentment against someone because of that person's rivalry, success, or advantages. Or you might come across this definition of jealousy. Jealousy is characterized by or proceeding from suspicious fears. By and large, our culture presents jealousy as an undesirable character trait. Very often in in media and entertainment, books, uh, husbands or wives are presented as jealous. And at, to, to make the point, their characters are, are made to express a, a visible expression of anger or rage in order to make their jealousy visible. But what should we think about jealousy when it is connected to God? Because we, we live and swim in a culture which jealousy is generally viewed from a negative perspective, we we might be tempted to think that the Lord's jealousy is a bad thing. But we shouldn't. In the Bible, the Lord's jealousy is a passionate expression of His love. And as we study Numbers 25, we're going to see a clear expression of the Lord's jealousy. And as we do, we need to remember that it is rooted in His perfect love. And it does not flow from any sinful or wicked motive, as our jealousy might. Instead, it flows from His righteous character and His unshakable affection for His people. Friends, brothers and sisters, Numbers 25, the passage we're going to study today, it's a sobering passage. But understood in the context of the whole sweep of Scripture as its backdrop... I hope that we'll also see that Numbers 25 is a passage which reveals God's deep and jealous love for His people. In this passage, we are reminded that God's attitude towards sin is far more intense than we often care to remember. And His affection for His people is so fierce that rather than leave us, He demands that we leave our sin. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Numbers 25. And if you're following along in one of the Bibles provided, you can find the beginning of the passage on page 133. I believe it's on page 133. And while you're turning there, allow me to uh, remind us of where we are in our study of the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers chronicles the journey of the people of Israel from Mount Sinai, after their freedom from slavery in Egypt, to the edge of the promised land of Canaan we have seen God's persistent grace along the way. And we have also seen Israel's disobedience and rebellion. And sadly, we'll see Israel's rebellion once again in Numbers 25. In, in the larger context of the book, this chapter continues to chronicle God's punishment of the older generation of the people of Israel and the rise of the younger generation. You'll recall that by the time we reached Numbers 13, uh, the Lord had led Israel to the edge of the promised land. But in chapter 14, Israel rebelled against the Lord and refused to go into the land. In an act of judgment and mercy upon Israel's rebellion, the Lord promised that a whole generation, everyone 20 years old and up, would die in the wilderness. That was God's judgment on the older generation of Israel. He told them that a period of 40 years would pass. And that their children, those 20 and younger, would go into the promised land. Raising up the younger generation was God's kind mercy on the people of Israel as a whole. And Numbers 25 continues to chronicle God's punishment of the older generation and the rise of the younger generation while still carrying forward his plan to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. As we saw in Numbers chapters 22 through 24 a couple of weeks ago, God is determined, he's determined to bless his people while Israel's enemies actually seek and pursue their destruction. God will not allow Israel to be destroyed from without. But that does not mean that the people of Israel could not do some serious damage from within. While Balak and Balaam had hoped to destroy Israel from up above, down below, the people of Israel began to pursue death and destruction through the sinful worship of false gods. The people of Israel were led astray by the guile and the wiles of the Midianites. This sin that we're going to read about in Numbers 25, it led God to bring a plague of His wrath upon the people of Israel. And it was Phinehas, one from the younger generation of Israel, who led the people of Israel out from under God's wrath by putting to death a couple who was an exemplar of the kind of sin which had led Israel astray. In this chapter, we learn about the dangers of pursuing sin. We learn that pursuing sin leads to death. And... We learn how we ought to pursue putting our sin to death. In fact, those two points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Number one, pursuing sin leads to death. Number two, pursuing the death of sin. And both of those points come out in our text as a whole. So I'm going to begin by reading the entire chapter of Numbers 25. And what we're actually going to do at each point is we're going to kind of comb through the whole passage twice. So let me read for us Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 to 18. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel who was killed with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor, in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague, on account of Peor. Again, in this chapter, we're considering how pursuing sin leads to death and how we ought to pursue the death of sin. Let's begin with our first point, pursuing sin leads to death. You may have noticed this chapter, it opens with a geographical marker where the people of Israel are in their journey. Once again, they are on the edge of the promised land. This is the last place where the people of Israel will camp before entering Canaan. In fact, this is the place from which Joshua will launch a scouting expedition. In short, the people of Israel are positioned and poised to enter the land. And the last time they were positioned and poised to enter the land, they rebelled and sinned. This time, the congregation sins yet again. This time, the rebellion takes on another form, but it is no less wicked The last time the people of Israel threw off God's rule by refusing to enter the land. This time they throw off God's rule by having other gods before him. By bowing down to false gods. Israel's sin came in when they began to fornicate with the daughters of Moab. This pursuit of illicit intimacy led to death. And while the women of Moab are guilty of using their, their wiles as we see there toward the end Of the chapter in verse 17. We should not be naive about what is mentioned here. The men of Israel were fully culpable. And responsible for their sin. Remember what the Apostle James said. In James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. There we read. But each person is tempted when he is lured. And enticed by his own desire. Then... Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's exactly what we see here in the book of Numbers, isn't it? And honestly, this is hard for our human ears to hear. We do not like to think that the the problem is inside of us. Or frankly, that the problem is us. We like to think that the problem is outside of us. We like to think that our shortcomings, uh, a term that we use in place of the biblical word sins, were caused by our environment or social institutions, or our upbringing, education or lack thereof, our spouse or lack thereof, our teacher, our friends, our siblings, our, our co-workers, and so on. No doubt some of those things can be contributing factors to our sin. But what James teaches and frankly what Moses teaches here is precisely what Jesus teaches in Mark chapter 7 verse 20 and Matthew chapter 15 verse 18 when he said, Out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. What we do, what we say is a result of what is already present in our hearts. The people of Israel went after the daughters of Moab because that was what was in their hearts It is what they desired. As you heard, James used some incredibly vivid language when he was describing the source of sin and its progress. When each person is tempted, he said, he is lured and enticed. And then then comes that devastating phrase from the Apostle James, by his own desire. If you look at Numbers chapter 25, verse 2, Take a look at verse 2 there. You see that, yes, the daughters of Moab, they they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. But who who bowed down to their gods? Who ate? It was the people of Israel. And, And why did they do it? Because it was their desire. This eating and bowing down was a willful choice on the part of the people of Israel, and it cut right to the heart of their relationship with Yahweh, with the one true God. In the ancient world, eating was a sign and display of fellowship, while bowing down was a sign and display of worship. Friends, the truth is, is that we are all sinners, and that our sin, though it may be made more difficult by external circumstances, our sin arises from within our own hearts and from our own desires. We all bow down to false idols, to false gods. We all give our worship to people and things other than God, the one true God. Does that surprise you? You might think to yourself, no, wait, wait a minute. I I haven't worshiped false gods. Yes, you, and me, and everyone else in this world have worshiped false gods. A false god or or an idol, as the Bible sometimes calls them, is anything that we make into an object of worship that is not God, the true God. We we bow down to these idols. Now, they they might not have been the the Baals or the Ashtaroth or or Allah, but we've all worshipped false gods. We bow down to these false gods. We order our lives around them. We obey them and serve them because they, we think they will give us what we want. Security or identity or power. And ironically, these false gods enslave us and rule over us. These false gods are usually often a good gift of God's creation that we have misused the most common false gods that we come up with are, are usually money, and physical intimacy, and power. But the reality is that anything can be a false god. Anything can become something that we wrongly give ourselves to and consider more important than the one true God. A false god is, is anything that consumes our affections for God and shoves him out of place. A false god can be something as mundane as comfort. It can be something as wonderful as your family or your children. It can be something as human as another person whose approval you are desperate to have. It can be something as prideful as wanting to be the smartest guy in the office, the the best mom on the block, or the most spiritual member of the small group. You worship the feeling of pride that you get when you Receive the attention you're seeking after. In his book uh, entitled Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller makes the case that we we might be able to identify our false gods by examining what our minds kind of relentlessly and most easily turn to in our quiet moments. What, do you, what are your thoughts kind of effortlessly turn to when there's nothing else demanding your attention? One or two daydreams are, are not necessarily an indication of an idol. Ask, rather, Keller writes, what do you habitually think about to get joy and comfort from in the privacy of your own heart? What, put it differently, what makes you say, if, if only I had this, or if only this were different in my life? What is your if only? That is possibly the image you've carved out, the idol and false god that your heart longs to worship. We shape our lives around these false gods. That's how we bow down to them and worship. And the truth is, is that we were made to worship and to have fellowship with God. The answer to worshiping false gods is not to stop worshiping. For we will worship something or someone. Above all, the answer to false worship is for our good and gracious God to mercifully awaken us to the prospect of His judgment, to awaken us to the fact that pursuing sin leads to death, to awaken us to His love for us displayed in Jesus Christ, for God to change our hearts and to glorify Him. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, let's grieve when our hearts vomit up false and sinful worship Let's recognize sin for what it is. And let's plead for the Lord to give us new hearts and new desires along with them. I mentioned that we should recognize sin for what it is. So so notice how Moses describes sin in verse 3 there. Verse 3, Moses said, so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And with that word yoked, I think that Moses is trying to communicate something about the nature of Israel's sin. Israel was binding itself to a false god almost re-entering the slavery that god yahweh had freed them from we don't often think about sin in this way that it has a a, a binding in effect but i think that it's support we recognize this sin it creates entanglements that's why the metaphor of the bonds of slavery are so pervasive in the bible when sin is discussed Sin binds us to things and people and idols in ways that are difficult to come unyoked from. The sad irony is that God had graciously bound and pledged Himself to Israel at Mount Sinai in a covenant, and there He, and there the people of Israel, after God had declared His love for them and bound Himself in a covenant to them, there they turned to a false god in the golden calf. Through the Balaam oracles were reminded of God's covenant with Abraham. But what happened at Sinai appears to have happened again here in Numbers 25. Here, Israel is forsaking its covenant bond with God in order to bind itself to another false god, to a false god. No wonder sin is so often referred to in the scripture in terms of adul- of adultery. And no wonder we have an expression of that here in these verses. And there's another aspect to this yoking as well. If you take a look at what Moses reveals in verses 14 and 15, you'll see the couple that Phinehas killed was made up of a very prominent son of Israel and a very prominent daughter of Midian. One older commentator pointed out that in their death, we see God's judgment was no respecter of persons, no matter how high of a position they occupy in society. That is no doubt true. What the actions of this couple communicate to us is that they were fully committed to their bond, so committed that they would flaunt their bond in the sight of the congregation of Israel, where people are weeping over the loss of those who are being put to death. Their actions show just how strong the pursuit of this sin of immorality and idolatry was in Israel. It ran deep. Their actions show us just how much they love their sin. Because God is jealous for His people and for the love, fellowship, and worship of His people, His anger is kindled, as verse 3 says there. Our God He is not an unfeeling God. He has a real relationship with His people, which He really interacts with them in time and in space. The Lord became angry with His people, not merely because they violated the first and the second and the seventh commandments, but because they loved their sin more than they loved Him At the very place where the Lord proclaimed His love for His people, through Balaam's third and fourth oracles in Numbers 24, the people of Israel, in Numbers 25, proclaimed their love for their sin. Israel passionately pursued sin, and so the Lord commanded Moses to pursue the leaders of Israel for punishment. All of the chiefs, according to verse 4, All of the representative heads of Israel were to be publicly put to death. They were to be hung in the sun. The wages of sin, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6.23, is death. Phinehas put the sinful couple to death, verse 8. But not before 24,000 people in Israel died, verse 9. Pursuing sin Leads to death. That was the punishment promised and delivered to Adam when he pursued sin. And so it is not at all remarkable that the Lord commands Moses to pursue this punishment in verse 4. These chiefs were responsible to teach Israel, to lead Israel to fear the Lord and keep his commands. Given Israel's behavior, we're left to wonder if they had pursued the responsibility the Lord had placed. Upon them. To the fathers of this congregation, and particularly to my fellow elders, remember these words from Hebrews 13 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Brothers, the leaders of Israel were held responsible for Israel's sin. I don't think that we'll be called to give an account in quite the same fashion, but we will be called to give an account. So let us be busy, tenderly caring for this flock, graciously correcting and teaching with love. Let us warn with sincerity and rebuke with sobriety. Let us help the weak and let us be patient with all of God's people we will give an account. Notice what the death of these chiefs, these leaders would accomplish in verse 4. Their public punishment would turn away the fierce anger of the Lord. Elsewhere in the book of Numbers, God's wrath is referred to as a plague. That's how it's referred to here in verse 9. Until God's wrath had been satisfied, this plague of His wrath would continue. And it was gracious of God to tell the people of Israel that the plague of His wrath would be stopped once all the chiefs were held responsible for the sin of the people. These men represented Israel before God. And it seems that they had failed to represent God before Israel by restraining the people's pursuit of sin. Until these leaders were held responsible, God's wrath against Israel would not be restrained the public death of these men would soberly and visibly display to the people of Israel the consequences of their sin. It would visibly display that pursuing sin leads to death. And perhaps that is why Phinehas' actions in the public sight of all of Israel was the act which finally satisfied and turned away the fierce anger of the Lord. There's something else we need to recognize about God's anger towards sin. He does not just hold His people accountable for their sin, but He holds everyone accountable for their sin. Remember what was said at the end of Numbers 25. If you look there at verses 16 through 18, through the people of Israel, the Lord punishes the four nations, the Midianites, for their part in Israel's sin. In other words, the Midianites and the daughters of Moab were not off the hook for the part that they played in leading Israel into sin and they would bear the consequences for it. They would be harassed by Israel for leading them into sin. Children, youth, young adults, I, I wonder if you've ever been tempted to invite others into your sin. Perhaps your your siblings or your your classmates or, or friends. Perhaps you've been tempted to invite them into your sin. Maybe you've convinced others to help you cover up your own sin. Be very careful of such things. Let me encourage you to speak with your parents or or another mature Christian today about how you can attempt as best you can to protect others from sin, and even from your sin, and, and not to lead others to it. We want to be those who spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Everyone here this morning should be very wary of leading others into sin. Do not do it. Puritan minister William Grenall wrote a hefty book entitled The Christian in Complete Armor. And in that book, he, he had this provocative statement about this subject. When you cause anyone to sin, you take the devil's office out of his hands. Let him do it himself if he can. But never allow him to use you as his hireling. Tempting someone else to sin is worse than sinning yourself. Do you not know what you do when you tempt? I will tell you. You do that which cannot be undone by your own repentance. It's a provocative thought. Let us remember where pursuing sin leads. It leads to death. So let us not be involved in helping others to come under God's condemnation and judgment. Instead, we need to be trusting Jesus for eternal life and involved with leading others to eternal life. It also means that by the grace of God and the help of the Holy Spirit, we need to pursue the death of sin in our own lives. So let's turn now and consider our second point. Having considered how pursuing sin leads to death, let's turn now and consider pursuing the death of sin. And as we begin to consider Numbers 25 from from this perspective, let's remember that from beginning to end in this chapter, we see that God encourages His people to eradicate sin from the congregation. From beginning to end, the Lord instructs and encourages people to pursue the eradication of sin from their midst. Why is that? Why would God instruct His people to pursue this? Why should we, pursue the death of sin in our own lives. Take a close look at verse 11, because that's where we learn the answer from the lips of the Lord Himself. Look at verse 11. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Three times in the space of one verse, we see that idea of jealous or jealousy. The Lord is jealous for his people. And what makes Phinehas' actions so commendable is that he takes the Lord's side against Israel's sin. He left the congregation and he came back to deal with it. He expressed God's same Attitude towards sin. And instead of coddling Israel's sin, instead of allowing that couple to flaunt their sin, Phinehas brought their sin to an end. That is what he did. But he did it because of something that was already true about God, namely, that God is jealous for his people. And when we say that God is jealous for His people, what we're saying is He is is jealous for His name being honored and glorified in the lives of His people. He is jealous for His glory in their lives, not only because He deserves to be glorified above all else, but also because when He is glorified in the lives of His people, it is for their ultimate good. Instead of being disgraced and dishonored and despised in the lives of His people, God desires to be esteemed as holy, worshipped, Honored and adored. And it is only right that he is. For he is almighty, most pure, most wise, most holy, most free, and most absolute. He is most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. As one believer has said, if all the world were print, we could never hope to catalog the perfections of our triune God. As our church's statement of faith says, he is worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. Christian, understand this. The Lord is jealous for you, He loves you before you go about putting sin to death in your life, indeed, if you have any hope of putting sin to death in your life, you need to understand this. The Lord is so jealous for His glory in your life and the death of sin in your life that He went to the greatest lengths of putting His one and only most beloved Son to death. We need to put sin to death in our lives But we can only begin this pursuit by recognizing that God sent Jesus Christ to the cross to be killed for us. Phinehas made atonement for Israel's sin through the death of this Israelite man and Midianite woman. He set Israel at one with God. He reconciled them to God through putting them to death. But nowhere are we told That Phinehas fully and finally averted God's wrath against sin once and for all. What we see here in Numbers 25 occurred on a temporal plane. And it was but a faint echo of what occurs on the eternal plane. The Bible teaches us that the, the reason there is sin in this life is because sin has entered the world through Adam and his disobedience. The Bible teaches us that death entered this world through sin. You can read about that in Romans 5. And sin was brought to an end through death. Harrowingly, the Bible teaches us that the eternal God does not let sin go unpunished. And because God is eternal, sin against him stretches on into eternity. And so a just judgment against sin is an eternal judgment of sin. Phinehas. It Temporally averted God's wrath against His people but God's wrath against the sins of His people need to be averted eternally that work was to be done by God's one and only Son the Lord Jesus Christ Jesus did it not by putting others to death but by willingly giving up His own life for those who should die the death their sins deserve because He was because He Himself was fully God because he himself existed from all eternal eternity and was eternal in his person. And because he was fully man, he could bear the eternal punishment for sins and perfectly represent sinners like you and me before God. And here's what's so remarkable about this truth in connection with Numbers 25. In Numbers 25, we have the third major test that the people of Israel have faced in this book. The first test was the test of food and hunger. They didn't want manna. They wanted meat in Numbers 11. And they failed to trust the Lord for His provision. And they faced His judgment because of it. The second major test was that of physical protection. They they did not trust that the Lord would protect them from their enemies as they entered the promised land. So they they refused to go in. And when the Lord told them they were going to wander for 40 years, they They said to themselves, on second thought, we're going to go ahead and try this. And we're going to take the ark of the Lord, and we're going to try and make God protect us as we go into the land. Try to wrongly make God protect them. They failed that test and faced God's judgment. And now the third major test is that of idolatry and false worship. And here we see they failed this test too. With all of this in view, in the biblical storyline, we're left with little hope. Over and over again in the wilderness, we've seen Israel sin and die. This should resonate in our hearts with the desire for someone, someone, to fully and finally overcome sin and death. And praise God, someone has. His name is Jesus. You know, earlier in the service, we read from Matthew chapter 4. And do you remember where Satan tempted him? In the wilderness. And do you remember what three temptations Satan set before Jesus? Satan tempted and tested Jesus with food, just as Israel was tested in Numbers 11. Satan tempted and tested Jesus with regard to physical safety just like Israel tested God concerning their safety in Numbers 14, wrongly trying to make God protect them. Satan wanted Jesus to try and force God to protect him by taking him to the top of the temple and jumping down, trying to force God's protective hand. And finally, Satan tempted and tested Jesus with false worship. He called Jesus to bow down and worship him. And unlike the people of Israel, Jesus passed each test. In the wilderness, Jesus proved to us that He is the fulfillment of all of God's hopes for Israel. Indeed, all of God's hopes for the world. And after walking out of that wilderness as our sinless and sympathetic Savior, one who's been tested, tempted like we are, yet without sin, Jesus eventually walked the cross. He gave up his life. He was put to death for the sins of all of those who would ever turned from them and put their faith in him. And his death was not the end. For three days after his death, God raised Jesus up from the dead, proving to us all that his atonement for sin once and for all satisfied God's eternal wrath. And those who trust in Jesus have no need to fear the plague of God's eternal wrath. Against our sin because once and for all, Jesus has made atonement for us. So friend, if you are here this morning and you haven't put your trust in Jesus for your salvation from God's wrath. Then right now, I want to invite you to turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe that he lived for you. The life that you and I have not lived. We should have lived, but haven't. Believe that He died for you, the death that your sins deserve. Believe that He lived every moment jealous for the glory of God and that He died in perfect, sinless obedience to God. Believe that He, in His death, paid the eternal wages that were due to your sin and my sin. And believe that He was raised from the grave for you so that you might be accepted as righteous in God's sight and received into His heavenly glory, into the promised land of heaven. And if you want to know more about what it means to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation from your sin and God's wrath, please come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with your Christian friend or family member that you came with this morning. There's nothing more important you can think about than what it means to be saved from the wrath of God by Jesus' atonement. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is only when we recognize God's jealous love for us that we can begin to jealously pursue putting sin to death in our lives and in the lives of our fellow believers. And this is something that we must do. We are not saving ourselves through pursuing holiness. Rather, it is in light of our salvation that we are jealously pursuing holiness. Practically speaking, we have to be jealous for God in our lives and in the lives of our fellow church members. While we keep His jealous affection for us in view, we need to take His attitude toward sin. That's what Phinehas did. He took God's side against sin. He took God's perspective on it. Brothers and sisters, do you take God's side against your sin? Do you harass it? and give it no quarter in your life or do you hold on to it and protect it in Matthew chapter 5 verse 29 Jesus said if your right eye causes you to sin tear it out and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell what is your heart's desire do you want heaven or do you want hell Are you taking drastic and what may seem to be dramatic actions to outsiders to put sin to death in your life? Do you need to go and throw your computer in the dump? Do you need to convert back to a flip phone with no internet access? Do you need to cancel your Netflix account or ask another brother or sister to review your watch history regularly? Do you need to stop reading romance novels? Or stop watching chick flicks because they make you bitter toward God? Do you need to leave a relationship behind because it is not pleasing to the Lord? Do you need to start serving others more regularly because you only have your needs in view? What eye gouging action do you need to take in your life? What sin killing action do you need to take in your life? You know. You know that that after our our benediction, we have this long pause that feels awkward to a lot of people. Uh, Take that time to reflect. Take that time to reflect and and ask this question, what sin by God's grace do I need to put to death? What sin by God's grace do I need to put to death? And, And what brother or sister in Christ can I approach to help me be jealous for God's glory in my life? This week, Tomorrow, or even today, if necessary, tell another brother or sister in Christ of your struggle and ask them for help. Tell them you're afraid. It's okay to tell those you're afraid. Tell them that you don't know how you're going to operate without whatever idol it is you're struggling with. Tell them and let them help you. Tell them that you want to stop worshiping this false god. And that you want Jesus to be glorified in your life above all else. Tell them that you want to put sin to death, but you're weak. Tell them that you need help harassing sin because sometimes you don't have the energy to pursue pushing it out of your life like you you know you need to. We need to recognize something about the nature of sin and Phinehas' actions in this passage. Sin has a corporate dimension. The people of Israel were infected as a whole. 24,000 people in Israel died. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, the Apostle Paul said, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And Phinehas' actions brought an end to the plague of God's wrath against the congregation of Israel. Did you notice that, brothers and sisters? Our sin, our individual sin, is not compartmentalized. We're all members of one body, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10. Our sin within our bodies harms the health and the well-being of the whole body. Be careful, for your sin may lead others to sin. You see, you need to pursue the death of sin in your own body, for your own spiritual good, but also for the good of this whole body, this church body. Do not love your sin more than you love Jesus and his people. Your life as a Christian is not as individualized, compartmentalized, or as privatized as our Western culture would like you to think. We belong to each other. We are responsible for one another. And if you think to yourself, this is, this is my struggle. It's, it's personal. It's private. I can handle it on my own. I'm going to have to handle it on my own. Then, brother or sister, you need to come to understand that because the Lord Jesus is so jealous for his glory in your life and your good, that he's going to crush your idols. And he's going to crush the illusion that you can handle your sin. You cannot handle your sin. It is a task master. It doesn't serve anyone. It makes you serve it. Your sin cannot be handled and it cannot be managed. It must be killed or it will kill your soul. The means that God has given us to put sin to death in our lives are his word, prayer, and his people, each other. Brothers and sisters, let's avail ourselves of every resource and every means of grace that our God has given to us. And that includes each other. Some of us also need to repent of not being as loving and jealous for the glory of God in the lives of our brothers and sisters in this congregation. Instead of dealing jealously with sin in one another's lives, some of us may have soft-pedaled sin and its consequences. Perhaps a brother or sister has shared with us that they're struggling with sin and we've simply said, "I'll, I'll, I'll pray for you. We absolutely should pray for one another. But we also have to walk with one another and help one another. We have to be willing to lay down our lives for one another and love one another as the Lord Jesus has loved us. Instead of saying, I'll pray for you, perhaps we should say, I'll pray for you, and we need to reorient the rest of our day or the priorities over the course of the week so that we can help our brother or sister come out from under sin's yoke. We've got to do this for one another because we know where sin leads. It leads to death. And how unloving if we don't give ourselves to see our fellow brothers and sisters diverted from that path, we need to learn from Phinehas and we need to follow his jealous example. And this is where I want us to conclude. Let's remember that Phinehas' actions brought God's wrath against the people of Israel to an end. And because of that, the story of Numbers continues. In other words, his actions were part of God's divinely ordained means of seeing to it that the people of Israel finally made it into the promised land of Canaan. Phinehas' actions were necessary to keep the people of Israel from dying in the wilderness. Phinehas' actions of putting sin to death were necessary for the people of Israel to live and to finally live in the promised land of Canaan. Our jealousy for God's glory in our own lives and the lives of our fellow church members, our brothers and sisters in Christ, is part of God's design in making sure that we all make it safely home to the promised land of heaven. In fact, it is part of His grace, His jealousy, and His love for us. And So may we rejoice in His jealous love for us and have His jealous love for one another.